Thanks, Kara. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? I want to take us on a journey, a memory journey back in our minds. Think back to last spring, last May. Way back in the spring of last year, our nation blew up in protest following the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And this was following months of being locked down at home, separated from our community, experiencing for the first time the phenomenon of Zoom fatigue. And in the wake of those deaths, our leaders in the church began scrambling to figure out how we as pastors address the unrest that was everywhere. Nothing like kicking off a sermon by immediately infusing tension into the room. Um, But go back with me. It was a really tense time. There was a lot of anxiety in the system back in the spring. And as we were processing how to respond to to the the social and the political unrest, uh, we began praying as pastors and discussing a lot and trying to figure out what what is the appropriate and right response in this moment, we say that we have this deep value for the, the ministry of reconciliation and justice. Okay, how do we walk that out? And we realized in that moment that we actually didn't know how to walk it out very well. And so what we decided to do is we decided to share a sermon from uh, one of our good friends, Josh Porter, who's the pastor at Van City Church right here in the city, knowing that his word was really hard but we felt it was really important. And our thinking at the time, a little peek behind the curtain, our thinking at the time was, let's share this video, this this hard word, and it will disrupt all of us. And if people are offended, then we will do the hard work of pastoring in relationships to be able to bring people along and keep us all together moving in the same direction. Well, what we discovered was that some of the offenses and some of the feelings uh, that, that came up after that sermon were very deep. And we did the hard work of reaching out to families and, and having conversations and meeting after meeting and loving and praying and, and doing, trying to do the work of reconciliation. And, um, and the, the truth was that for some people, feelings were hurt beyond what was easily repairable. And so it was a summer full of very difficult conversations and some dear friends leaving the church. Now, during that time, there were two consistent objections that were raised that I feel were totally fair, totally fair objections. The first one was, why do we talk so forcefully about racial reconciliation, but we're unwilling, or at least have proven to be unwilling, to talk about the evil and injustice of abortion with the same level of clarity? which is something that we care deeply about as Christians. The second objection that I heard on a regular basis was, if we really believe that reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel, why do we only talk about racial justice after the gruesome video death of a black man? Again, Again, something something that that we we care deeply deeply about. about. And And I I feel feel like both of those are fair questions to ask. And so here's what I did in response to that. I put on the calendar for January 2021 that I was going to talk about abortion one Sunday 
and, and, and politics, and then I was going to talk about racial justice the following Sunday, and I thought I would put it off until January 2021 when everything finally will have calmed down. <laughs> the election would be over, there would be no more tension in the air, and we can just have a civil conversation about some, some you know, difficult issues. Well, then, then the events that took place over the last couple of weeks have brought us to another one of those moments, one where our pastors hurried to pray and discuss and to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit about how we are supposed to respond in this moment as a church. And again, like in the spring, there's a lot of feelings in the air right now. How many of you have been feeling like there's some feelings in the air right now? And so... After a lot of prayer and a lot of conversations with other people and other pastors outside of our church, um, I decided that I would put off the original plan for what we were going to talk about this week and next because I feel like God has given me something else to say to this moment. And on the front end, I want to tell you that this is an imperfect sermon and that I actually believe that a sermon is an imperfect way for us to lead our people in a time of division but it's still important to use this time to speak the heart of what we, what we hear as the heart of God. So on the front end, I want to ask, if you, as a result of this sermon, are hurt, uh, angry, frustrated, or just even annoyed at this sermon, please don't push away. I want to encourage you to give me grace. And if you feel those things at the end, to please come and talk to me. I'd love to get together, sit down, and, and work this through. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 14, and I'll pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus with a desire to be like Jesus and a desire to bring everything that we have, everything we are, everything we value, everything we hope for, our identity, and if it's in any other thing, excuse me, we, we bring it before you, Lord, and we lay it at your feet this morning. Because our aim is not to make statements. Our aim is not to be seen on the right or wrong side of any position. Our aim, Lord, is simply to follow the way of Jesus and to, and to live in your kingdom. I pray for pastors across the city. I have tons of friends who are, who are speaking to these same issues this, this Sunday. I pray, Lord, across our city and our nation, Lord, that you would give grace to pastors who are wrestling with how to address some of the things that we've experienced. And we pray, Lord, you'd hold the church together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you read the Gospels, uh, you will come across these strange stories on a regular basis where Jesus is co confronting a group of religious leaders that are called the Pharisees over what seems to us to be non-issues. Like, there seems to be a constant argument about what's okay and what's not okay to do on the Sabbath. Have you noticed that that's like a quarter of the Gospels, it feels like? Look at Luke 14. Here's what we read beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. What a strange story. 
And to understand the implications of this story, there's something that we need to know about the Pharisees. Now, if you've been in the evangelical world, if you've been in the church for any length of time, no doubt you have a picture in your mind when you think of a Pharisee. And it's probably a picture of a staunch, legalistic man who was the guardian of external, ritualistic religion. But the truth, giving Pharisees a little more benefit of the doubt, is that these were leaders. Uh, uh, scholars argue that there were actually thousands of Pharisees in, in Israel at the time. And that these were leaders in Israel with a passion for God's word and a deep passion for his kingdom. The Pharisees were actually a revolutionary political movement. And they were motivated by an eschatological vision of God restoring Israel to national power through strict Torah observance. That was a mouthful. Eschatological meaning they had a view of, of sort of an ultimate end of God bringing his kingdom at the very end of the story and finally establishing the people of God, you know, as sort of the, the people who are powerful in the world again. So these were men who were not legalists for legalism's sake. They actually believed that if the people of Israel were sufficiently obedient to God's commands, God would then send a messianic figure to lead them, to throw off the oppression and the rule of Rome, and to, to restore Israel to a national power. These people were into, they were, they were a Jewish renewal movement, trying to lead Israel into national purity that would result in the coming of God's kingdom. So consider the story in Luke 14 through those, those eyes. Jesus is invited to one of these leaders' house. In fact, it says a prominent Pharisee's house for dinner on the Sabbath. And you can feel the tension in the room from the moment he steps in. In verse 1, it says that Jesus was being carefully watched. And so then Jesus took the bait, like aggressively took the bait, and confronted the trap that they had set. There was a man with swelling in his body who needed healing, and even though it was the Sabbath, the God's ordained set-aside day for rest and worship, Jesus did the work of healing the man. And this really bothered the Pharisees. Now, before we rush to judge the, the religious legalism of the Pharisees, keep in mind of a few, a few things. First, these are faithful men of God who love his word. Second, these are men who invited a man who was sick, who had an issue of swelling in his body, to dinner. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees over and over again inviting the, the unlovely people to come and eat at their table. They're really good people, really good moral people. And third, these men were not opposed to healing. They actually really believed in it, and many of them practiced healing. Their argument was simply, why does Jesus need to do this today? Why can't he just heal the guy on Monday? What's the rush? Why does he have to break the Sabbath to do this? And their concerns were motivated by an eschatological hope in the coming of God's kingdom, which is the very thing that Jesus, that Jesus' entire ministry was about. The, the whole message that Jesus came preaching was the kingdom of God is at hand, which probably a number of these Pharisees were excited to hear. They were just frustrated at the fact that Jesus was kind of spoiling it by breaking their commands. Why was this such a big deal in the Gospels? Why all the controversy? You see, Jesus came and he was confronting well-intended bad theology and worldview. 
The vision for God's kingdom that the Pharisees had was off by a few degrees and had led God's people away from the, the, the call that he had for them and into an idolatry, an idolatry of religious purity, an idolatry of Jewish identity, and an idolatry of the dream of national liberation. In his book, The New Testament and Its World, N.T. Wright says it like this. The clash between Jesus and the Pharisees, therefore, must be seen in terms of two alternative political agendas generated by the alternative eschatological beliefs of two competing renewal movements. Jesus was announcing the kingdom in a way that did not reinforce, but rather called into question the agenda of revolutionary zeal that dominated the horizon of the leading group with Pharisaism. The coming of the kingdom, as Jesus announced it, put before his Pharisaic contemporaries a challenge, an agenda. Give up your interpretation of your tradition, which is driving you towards ruin. Embrace instead a very different interpretation of the tradition, one which, though it looks like the way of loss, is in fact the way to true victory, the way of the cross. And every single one of us in this room and online is prone to similar idolatry, especially when it comes to issues of politics. Whether we're aware of it or not, our strong political feelings are actually connected to an eschatological hope, a longing for heaven on earth. And that eschatological hope in each and every one of us, the world, different systems and tribes and teams in the world have sought to co-opt that hope and drag it into their specific agenda. And so every one of us thinks that we are right, and every one of us is in some areas at least partially wrong. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt by saying that. <laughs> We, like the Pharisees, need our theology and our worldview confronted with the gospel of the kingdom every single day. As Christians, our life's aim is actually to walk closely to Jesus and, and daily to become more like him through the way of the cross. And so we desperately, as Christians, we desperately want to be rid of anything that skews us away from God's eternal life that he has in store, in store for every single one of us. In Luke 4, when Jesus was just getting started with his public ministry, he announced himself like this. It says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, before he, he launches into three years of ministry, he get, goes back to his hometown. He opens the scroll of Isaiah to this particular prophecy. He reads it out loud and he says, this is, this is me and this is what I'm all about. Here's what you're going to see for the next few years. This is the purpose for which I have come. 
And then in Matthew 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry is described like this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Jesus' entire ministry was centered on this concept of the kingdom of God which Dallas Willard describes as the range of God's effective will. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus, he, he gives us the same vision in teaching us how to pray. He calls us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. He said, what is the aim of my ministry? My aim is that this community would experience the reality of heaven here and now. And so what is this kingdom like? What is this kingdom that Jesus came to, to lead us into? It's what's described in Matthew 5 through 7. Immediately after this passage about how Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching about the kingdom of God, setting free those who were captives, healing those who were sick, you know, uh, uh, recovery of sight to the blind, all of that sort of stuff, he then launches into the famous Sermon on the Mount where he describes the values of the kingdom and the marks by which you would tell who are his people. He says that this is a kingdom that is ruled by God himself. It's an upside-down kingdom where the way of power is subverted by sacrificial love. It's one where authority comes through humility and servanthood. It's one of nonviolence and enemy love. One of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, a man named John Wimber, described Jesus' life and ministry like this. Jesus was full of the Spirit without measure, and empowered for a purpose, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. Jesus' ministry was all about proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He corrected wrong theology and the eschatological vision of the Pharisees. He taught us the way that God's kingdom is not one of uh, adherence, strict adherence to the law, but rather about the transformation of the heart. And then Jesus demonstrated the kingdom. He healed the sick. He set free the captive, those who were oppressed by demons. He fed the hungry. He clothed the poor. He restored sight to the blind. And he welcomed the outcast and the foreigner. Jesus confronted the rich and those who oppressed the poor. He cleansed the temple in righteous anger. He broke social and political mores by eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sitting with the the Samaritan woman who was the ethnic other. Jesus was extremely political. He was. Jesus was flat out extremely political. But he didn't fit into the partisanship of his time. He belonged to no specific tribe. And he belongs to no partisan tribe in our time either. Jesus taught and demonstrated a different kind of kingdom that offended all all of the powers of his day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, two competing political and religious factions, came together to conspire with Rome to murder Jesus. The one thing that brought all three groups who were enemies of one another together was a shared hatred and fear of Jesus and his way. Isn't that remarkable? The religious and powerful all united to take down Jesus. In John 18, 
The Pharisees and the high priests, they bring Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And this is a fascinating interplay of different political powers, you know, coming together and figuring out how they can work in tandem to, to murder Jesus. And they said that the, the claim that was against Jesus was that he was announcing himself as the king, which for the Jews was blasphemy, and for Rome it was sedition. And it was the perfect accusation to bring everyone together against Jesus. And look with me at verse 13. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is the true king, but his kingdom is not of this world. His is a heavenly kingdom. His is an upside-down kingdom that subverts the power structures of this world. It doesn't come through violence or force. It doesn't come through manipulation and lies. Jesus' kingdom comes by the way of the cross. As Revelation 12 describes followers of Jesus, he says that they triumph by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and loving not their lives even unto death. Can I get an amen? Verse 38. With this, Pilate went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Pilate offers them a loophole. He gives them an out, an opportunity to rethink the execution of Jesus. And instead of pardoning Jesus, they cry out for Barabbas. Now, fun fact, Barabbas' actual name was Jesus Barabbas. Literally, his name was Jesus, the Son of the Father. This is a true story, but this is also a brilliant literary device. Because what we see in this text is essentially Pilate was asking, which Jesus do you want? Do you want the Jesus who comes with an upside-down kingdom by way of the cross? Or do you want the one who comes with violence and revolution? And the Jews of that day... And people from every generation since have consistently chosen the Jesus of violence and revolution. And this is our human condition. Sadly, we've seen the Christian church throughout history also slip into choosing Jesus Barabbas. We saw it in Constantine and Constantinianism. We saw it with Augustine and just war theory. We saw it in the Crusades we saw a version of it even in the founding of this nation, and we've seen it in nearly every war in the last two millennia. 
And we saw this again 11 days ago in our own nation at the Capitol. Now, next Sunday, we will talk about how we as followers of Jesus should think about political issues and, you know, something that we call the third way of engaging. But for today, I want to spend the rest of our time just reflecting a little bit about how we as Christians respond to what we saw on January 6th. Now, there are a number of people who have wanted me to say something, to make a statement, to to be clear about this, which is actually pretty easy. It requires no courage on my part whatsoever to state the obvious that the violence that we saw 11 days ago was evil. As followers of Jesus, we clearly condemn acts of violence as protest, whether it's from members of Antifa on the left, you know, committing acts of violence in cities like Portland, or if it's the Proud Boys and people on the right attempting an insurrection against Congress in the Capitol. What is much more pressing and concerning than the violence that we saw is the participation in this violence by people who claim to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I have that photo up? In photos from that day, we saw a devastating mixture of symbols. We saw racist symbols like the Confederate flag, lynching nooses, a man wearing a shirt with the words Camp Auschwitz written on it, all alongside images of wooden crosses and signs that say Jesus saves, while Christian worship music was playing on the steps of the the Capitol building and rioters chanting things like, shout if you love Jesus. Behind what we saw at the Capitol, there is a spirit that is at work in the violence. And many of the people who got caught up in this are Christians who are believing lies and a false gospel. And you can call this false gospel civil religion or more commonly Christian nationalism. At its heart, Christian nationalism is syncretism. It's essentially mixing our faith with our national identity until they're so blended you can't tell which is which. What do you guys think of that? Look at that. Look at that hopeful young Republican patriot interning for Senator Don Benton back in the year 2000. (laughs) It's like the flag is swallowing me up. Um, I just wanted to take a moment and flash my uh, patriotism and my Republican bona fides in case any of you are about to accuse me of being an anti-American Marxist. Show me what you got. And look at how much hair gel somebody needed to disciple that boy. Um, Christian nationalism is the belief that God uniquely cares about the United States in a way that is different from how he cares about or interacts with other countries. Christian nationalism is the belief that God is so invested in our political system that a victory for one party over another is somehow a victory for the kingdom of God. Christian nationalism is the belief that we need to exercise our votes, prayers, resources, spiritual gifts like prophecy for a specific political end that is incontrovertibly the will of God. It's the belief that a Christian's hope and security is somehow connected to and intertwined with specific political victory. And this, my friends, this, this, this Christian nationalism is a gospel that is a few degrees off. 
And if a Christian walks down that road long enough, it leads into idolatry. Now, I want to be clear that what we saw in Washington, D.C. on that day was nowhere near the way of Jesus. I don't see that as merely just slightly off from the gospel of the kingdom. That was very far away from the way of Jesus. But when a political ideology gets tangled up in our hearts with our Christian identity, it makes a mess. It leads us to see our side on an issue as being God's side on an issue. It leads us to believe that our enemies are therefore God's enemies and therefore need to be destroyed because those people are the great threat against our eschatological hope. It's the perspective that allows us to see the other team, whatever your other team is, as fundamentally opposed to the character and will of God, which is, I say that because somebody literally said that to me a couple of months ago, that they viewed their opposing party as fundamentally godless. As Christians, we need to watch out for the seductive pull to align with power. Christians believe that we can thrive in any form of government. In fact, democracy isn't even a biblical form of government, though we love it and it is a great form of government. There is no, that's not the point. Jesus says you can thrive in any kind of government. You can thrive under any party's leadership. And we are to always have a posture of honoring and resisting at the same time. That is the posture of the Christian. If we only embrace power, we are in danger of the distortion of our message and our mission. In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, Scott Sauls writes, when those in power made Christianity the state religion, the church began its decline toward irrelevance. And so instead, the claim that Jesus makes is that Christians are now part of a whole new global family that is not embodied in any one government or in any one nation or in any one ethnicity or in any one language. Exodus 19 says that the people of Israel were to be a chosen nation. But now in Christ, there are no special nations. Instead, there is a special people that is in all of the nations of the world, the people of God. And the promise that we read in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the scriptures, that, that, through, that, that, that God was going to send a Messiah through whom all peoples would be blessed, is now being fulfilled in Christ and through his church as a blessing in each nation. And so it's been said that you should have more in common with a Christian in another nation than you do with somebody in, the, in this country who doesn't follow Jesus. And this, this heart posture, it saves us from the idolatry of Christian nationalism. It frees us from the existential dread that, you know, that, of whether or not the church is going to survive in the future days of America. History actually tells us that the more enmeshed the Christian community is with political power, the less potent the message of Christ becomes in that culture. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And the identity that we are given throughout the New Testament is one of an exile, citizens of heaven, wanderers in the world who are longing for home. And in our moment, 
where an idealized you know, vision of the Christian past is being held by some groups within the church who say that we need to take back America for Jesus. I believe that we need to resist this way of thinking with humility and remember the call on all of our lives, the call on the church is to stay about the business of making disciples for Jesus. That is our aim. That is our mission. That is our goal. And the seduction of aligning the way of Jesus with any political ideology, it tempts us all in different ways. Let's, let's be honest. This is not a liberal versus conservative issue at all. This, is, this affects the entire spectrum. In the same way that what we, what we saw as just like obvious on January 6th, We've seen pervasive, like, throughout the, the community of Jesus who would say that, you know, um, uh, the way of Jesus would align with this political movement or that political movement. The way of Jesus would align totally with cultural Marxism and, and uh, critical race theory and whatever else. And we are, we're critical of anybody who's trying to co-opt the gospel into their agenda. Amen? And so as Jesus came into the home of a Pharisee, and confronted bad theology over dinner. I mean, consider this. The Pharisee was in the safety of his own home, and Jesus came to the safe space of his home to confront his bad theology and worldview. And that same way, I believe that in this moment, Jesus is coming into the home of the American evangelical church to address some things, some things that we've allowed to grow in our hearts. And this is not to say that we shouldn't engage in politics or participate according to our Christian values. We absolutely should. We absolutely should vote according to the, conscience, the, the, the values that Jesus gives us in his word. I really believe that. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So come back for that. I'll tell you who's right and who's wrong. It'll be great. What I'm saying is that we must guard our hearts in wrapping our identities and our hopes in the American flag or either political party. And the fruit of this way of thinking is everywhere. It feels like in our country we are incapable of having conversations with any kind of nuance. We can't talk about ideas or policies without making it about somebody's identity. Families right now are being split apart over political disagreements. Because when political ideology gets wrapped up into our identity and into our theology, you know what is allowed to grow under the surface? Contempt for other people. Over the last few weeks, I have heard gut-wrenching stories of things that adult children have said to their parents, of things that grandparents have spoken over their grown grandchildren. Heartbreaking stuff the labels that have been thrown at members of our own families over politics. Racist, baby killer, Marxist, bigot, coward, fool. And when that happens, those words don't come back easily, do they? You can't, you can't reel that back in. Once that's been said, it's out there forever. And it crushes me. And this is why, as God's people, it's never been more important to resist the pull of the culture, the cultural demand that we find our home in one team or another, 
Because as Christians, we belong to Jesus. We reflect Jesus. Amen? Go and stand with me. I have a lot more on my mind and my heart, and I'd love to talk about it. Kind of don't want to talk about it at the same time. But I'm not sure how to do it with clarity right now, so we're just going to end the sermon and move into ministry time, and I'm going to invite Jace to come up to lead us into to waiting on the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Marsh. Marshall. <laughs> God, we sense um, there's a real buzz in the room. And we, <laughs> who? Lord, we submit to your presence right now, your authority. If you can feel the Holy Spirit in the room right now, there is a strong invitation to submit. As Marshall was speaking, the picture of Jesus having a meal is so clear, it's so vivid that even in the confrontation of idols and ideologies that we elevate above the kingdom, Jesus breaks bread with you and he invites you in to the embrace that comes with repentance and forgiveness. Do not hold on to idols this morning. There is an embrace for you. This morning as I was praying, prepping for ministry time, I also wrote out the word flourish because I found that I've been repeating it in all of my prayers. And this morning it clicked that I've been repeating this word over and over and over and over and over again. And I looked it up and it has to do with not just growing, but thriving in the proper environment that you, you cultivate. If something is flourishing, it has been placed in an environment that allows for the optimal growth. So some of us have just been growing, but God is ready to weed, and he's ready to pour in nutrients to that soil. He's ready to let the sun shine. It is time to flourish now. You, have, you were made to flourish in his kingdom. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate right now, and who, uh, both the people online and in people in the room, would you illuminate where they have settled for shade when there is sunlight, when they have settled for a drought when there is living water? Where have they settled for just things that are subpar? I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. But I really want to invite all of you to be sensitive to the Spirit, too. What is God doing in you, and what is he doing in your neighbor? So many of you are 
you guys are still coming off that mountaintop of a week of prayer and fasting and God's been speaking to you, there's an invitation to move upon what he's been speaking this morning. What has he been saying? Who has he been highlighting? Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Feel free to move about the room. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Liz Wakeman, I feel like I, um, I see your feet planted so firmly. Your roots go so deep. Um, there isn't a hurricane that could knock over the tree of your life. And there's such favor on you this morning that I see. You are a strong rooted tree. You are a Psalm 1 follower of Jesus. And I just think you need to take heart and take courage and accept the favor of the Lord upon you this morning. I know that um, that if you have strong uh, political or ideological values, um, the message of the kingdom sometimes can uh, offend those things. And <clears throat> Jesus talked about how the, the message of the kingdom was like seed, and some of it landed along the path. And a lot of us have, like, a path that we've trod on and that others have gone before us and it's gotten packed down with not just, um, not just teachings about, you know, about patriotism and, um, you know, love of country and uh, the con- love for the Constitution and conservative values, um, which is this, where I come from. But also, you know, um, there's things that are attached to the, to the other side of the spectrum, to, um, uh, to the um, liberal values and things like that, um, where, there's, where there's things that you just feel like uh, it's just, it just feels right. Well, that's like that path that's packed down, and we have to be willing as Christians to hold this all open with open hands and say, God... Would you put your plow down and break up the fallow ground? Um, Sometimes when God works, it doesn't feel comfortable. But he's looking for a harvest. And where there's there's ground that's been packed down, um, we have to allow God's plow to come in, no matter how uncomfortable it feels. And our, our allegiance has to be to Jesus above everything. So 
um, I, I just invite you to, to like, ask the Lord to, to begin to deal with some of those things that uh, in this time of turmoil, God has a place of usefulness and peace for us to walk in under his anointing, following his cloud, serving his kingdom. So, um, Lord, we just ask that you would put your plow down into our hearts, God. And, God, that you would break up anything that's hard, anything that's gotten packed down, O Lord. Lord, we hold all of our values, all of our history, all of our ideologies open before you, Lord. And, God, we submit those, Lord, to your kingdom. We submit those to you, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts, Lord, that we would be citizens of the kingdom of God, that we would have allegiance to one, and that's you, Jesus, you and you alone. God, we pray, Lord, that, um, that you would um, help us, Lord, not to live a life of being triggered, but a life of being led by your spirit. The date is January 17th. I feel like um, there are individuals in the room where this will be marked on their calendar um, in their journey with Jesus, that God is doing something so significant in some hearts right now that they will remember um, January 17th, 2021 as a milestone day. So God, um, whoever those individuals are, Bless that work. I pray for new life in that on today, starting now, that there would be breakthrough, freedom, new freedom that you have in store for them. If God is doing something, we just we want to give you space and time to be patient to that. And we also respect if you have little kiddos downstairs, the day's winding down, the afternoon, time for you to go. So this is, I'm going to close it. I'm going to close it with some prayer. But as always, it's by no means over. <laughs> you can just do, do what you need to do to honor what the Holy Spirit's doing. Um, so, God, we just, we bend our knee to you, King Jesus. Our allegiance is to you. We want to be your disciples, first and foremost. We receive from you your Holy Spirit with, with such thanksgiving in our hearts that there is an alternative way in life besides just little camps the world wants to put us in and pit us against. We refuse. We say no. We say yes to your way instead. God, I pray that you would seal up and bless and establish the work that you've done this morning.
that it would not be forgotten over the week, but that it would, be, that it would resonate deep in our hearts, God, that we would become your people. We would be known as your people, and that would be good news to those on the outside, not bad news. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you, Lord. Do more of it, God. God, we bless this afternoon. I say peace in Jesus' name. Amen.